into the moth light. Hello and welcome to Into the Mothlight podcast. First this week, thank you so much to everyone who has been listening to our recent episodes. We get a rough idea where in the world people are listening and it does blow our tiny minds to know that we have people in the United States, the UK, Chile, Austria, Canada, the Netherlands, India. We've had people check us out from Iceland to Hong Kong, so Thank you so much for your support. If you want to let us know where you are in the world or just to get in touch to say hi, you can contact us at mothlightpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at the themothlightpod. This week, an interview with moving image artist and film curator Dr Richard Ashrowan. Richard has been the creative director of the Alchemy Film and Moving Image Festival in Scotland since 2010. He works with video and 16mm film, creating short, single-channel films, immersive video installations and live multi-projector performance experiments. His works are shown at artist-led spaces, galleries and film festivals around the world. I've known Richard for a number of years now through Alchemy, where I have embraced the opportunity to attend many 10.30am screenings of wildly experimental films that he's programmed. And also through the Moving Image Makers Collective, where he has shared his knowledge and passion for the moving image to support people who are at the start of their journey into making experimental films. In the interview, he talks about discovering Derek Jarman and Peter Greenaway, his love for Tarkovsky and Stan Brakhage, his artistic response to Brexit and his love for working in 16mm. I asked him first, however, when he first became aware of the moving image as we appreciate it. Into the moth light. I think I didn't really have any awareness uh, when I was younger that the moving image was anything other than what I saw on TV and um, uh, in the cinema. Um, conventional cinema so that that it really didn't feature on my horizon and actually all through my youth and teenage years um, I was only really aware of the of the stuff that's on conventional release um, I'll be honest and say you know my eyes really began to open when I uh, first moved to London and I started to go and go and see art house films of different kinds so I remember seeing a Derek Jarman film and just thinking, what on earth is this? And then going to see Peter Greenaway. And these, I knew there was something there. I knew that something very, very uh, different was possible within filmmaking. And I knew I loved it uh, immediately. It was it was like manna from heaven for me to begin to in- encounter those art house film directors. But really, I think um, when I became aware of it as a much more of an art form, um, and was perhaps seeing um, seeing an exhibition at the National Galleries uh, and um, that was called The Passions and it was it was just a real moment of, of realizing that the moving image could be something very very different 
and could be could be something that's presented in a gallery as well as in the cinema. Um, I think beyond that, uh, possibly seeing the films of Tarkovsky, uh, which was happened to me. I have to say, I think I was over 30 when I first saw any Tarkovsky films. And the first one I was exposed to actually was Mirror, uh, unusually. And it probably remains to me to this day, my favorite film ever. I can watch it again and again and still get more from it. So I think that was, those were the kind of starting points for me, really. And at what point after that did you decide to pick up a camera and start to think about what you might want to present to the world? Uh, that also was kind of happenstance uh, in the way that that happened. Um, it was really, you know, I had a professional working life for a while working in new media and um, I ended up working for a TV production company uh, in, in Soho uh, called Rapido TV who made... Um, uh, trashy but quite subversive uh, television including things like Euro Trash and um, the much better Passengers um, Fortean TV some very strange kind of late night Channel 4 television <laughs> and um, so we started doing um, uh, webcasting um, from various different underground events in uh, London uh, and particularly within the the London club scene so I, I kind of got interested uh, there but then I left London um, I got really hacked off with it and moved to the Scottish borders and it was actually moving to the Scottish borders that made me realize I wanted to do something really creative with the moving image I became fascinated initially with rain and um, decided that I would make a feature-length film about rain uh, because of the <laughs> incredible uh, amount of rain that we seemed to get in the Scottish borders. It was new for me moving from the south, but uh, that, of course, just never happened. Um, but I did meet, at that time, an artist called Alexander Hamilton, and he was working on a project, actually, with a bunch of lawyers, and he said, um, I need someone to uh, to work with to make some moving image with this um, with this bunch of lawyers. Um, so that was actually my first um, ever moving image project, and it was a, a kind of a multi-screen project uh, that involved a lot of um, interviewing um, with this this the, the members of this law firm. So uh, and it, it ended up as an installation in their offices uh, in centre of Edinburgh. Um, we subsequently worked together, Alexander Hamilton and I, for um, three to four years, uh, making moving image works of different kinds. And um, for me, that was a wonderful kind of baptism because I hadn't been to art school. Uh, I hadn't learnt any kind of craft uh, to do with moving image. So, But I had the self-confidence to say, I can use a camera um, and I'll use it my way. So I just kind of got on with it and um, made things and edited things, uh, but I, I understood none of the kind of background grammar of artist practice. And um, working with a contemporary artist who had been in the scene for many, many years uh, was an absolute blessing because in many ways it gave me the language um, that I needed to be able to communicate with other people, people who owned galleries, curators, other artists, um, so it was a really wonderful induction and I have to say I feel that I owe him an awful lot uh, for that induction. 
I felt when I started working in the arts space rather than a commercial space uh, that I just arrived at home. I thought this is where it's at. I, you know, I just haven't um, experienced anything like this before. I'd always been quite flighty and moved from one thing to another. Uh, but when I arrived in this space, I just thought this is this is it. This can contain all of me. <laughs> So I think one of your earliest um, moving image installations was around some of the themes associated with wind farms and um, installed in a space in Innerleithen in the Scottish Borders. And I know that from your, some of your early days, you were you're producing work and putting in installations and spaces where you could. It feels like almost for your own curiosity rather than trying to engage an audience perhaps at this time. I think that's true. I, I think I've never actually been as interested in audiences as perhaps I should be. I think if you're driven by audiences, you start to allow a different kind of um, influence upon your work. So uh, I was exploring creatively. And um, that work that you're referring to is called The Windmills of Innerleithen. And uh, it was it had, a, had a small amount of funding attached to it. Um, but it was also an experiment in community arts uh, or placing art within a community in, in a way that was interesting and challenging. So for that project, um, it, it was a kind of evocation, a poetic um, evocation of the experience of wind farms. But we placed that in a multi-screen installation. I've always been interested in that idea of installation rather than single channel film. Uh, we placed that in a uh, shop on the high street of Innerleithen and I stood outside like an old-fashioned shopkeeper and invited people in to look at the wares that we were selling. <laughs> so I loved that experience and um, for me that planted a seed about kind of community engagement, I mm -hmm. think. Um, we had people who were walking up and down Innerleithen High Street just going about their shopping. They would never have gone into an art gallery if I'd said this is an art gallery but I stood there and invited people in and said do you want to come in and see a nine minute free film screening and it, just pitching it in that way uh, made it very accessible to people and I realized that there was an enormous barrier with the white box contemporary art gallery and I felt much again much more at home doing something like that than um, in one of those kind of really fancy art galleries I was also working on a project at that time I'd begun working on a project up in Perth which was a, a much bigger project um, and uh, in, involving 32 screens uh, that we put into Perth Concert Hall and I was lead artist I became lead artist on that project um, so these are very different propositions you know the thing on on the high street in Innerleithen, which was done for next to no budget through to something that had a, a, a budget of a couple of hundred thousand pounds um, to pull off uh, and you know, I, I always return to the kind of the low budget. Um, what can you do yourself in your community? That to me is a always a much more powerful space. So you arrived in the Scottish borders and you identified the you know, an artist practice that could keep you engaged. And tell me about when the the fascination with alchemy started to appear and how that informed your work and your work in practice 
alchemy. <laughs> yeah, I think in in a way, um, some of that came out of actually my PhD research. So one of the things I think coming to filmmaking and actually having a reasonable amount of uh, success uh, in a way in um, exhibitions and screenings at an early stage in my career, although a later stage in my life, was it, that was very gratifying. But there was also always this uh, slight fear in in the back of my mind that I hadn't covered all the bases because I hadn't been through art school and I was very much self-taught in many ways. Um, so I I felt this uh, this need to kind of dig in a little bit more into the academic context. Uh, of course, being ambitious. Um, I went straight in to do a PhD uh, and the idea for exploring the realm of alchemy as a word and as really a language of transformation came through my PhD research. So initially I was interested in exploring the notion of abstraction in the moving image with a particular relationship to landscape. So I was very interested in the abstractions of JMW Turner. Um, in particular, and landscape painters who had abstracted the landscape in different ways. And I was interested in looking at how that uh, could be uh, employed and developed in the moving image. Once I started to look at the notion of abstraction, uh, one realizes that everything is actually a transformation of one thing or another. So when you look at something and then ultimately you produce an artwork, whether that's a painting or uh, something on a screen, you have you have uh, run it through your own system as it were and you've transformed it in the process and that to me began to be the heart of what i was interested in what what is that transformation that we that we em employ through interpreting reality and spitting it out the other side as a creative thing as a as, as, as something we put out in the world so once you start to think about the notion of transformation then you realize there's a 2000 year history associated with that idea of transformation of one thing into another. And that is the science um, and practice of alchemy. It has its own language. It has all these stages of transformation. Uh, I became fascinated with the way in which um, al certain alchemists had actually worked directly with light um, and with matter and with the kind of pre-scientific understanding of what light is, even its links to mysticism. So I opened out this universe of inquiry, which I uh, went quite deeply in uh, during the period of my PhD research. So I think that's how alchemy came into fo focus. And in terms of starting a festival and calling it uh, alchemy, it was originally, I think, a part of my research methodology. So... Uh, True to form, I think I, I decided that the easiest way to find out who was out there, who was uh, working in a domain similar or connected to mine, um, the best way to do that would be to start a film festival and have an open call for entries and find out what filmmakers were out there who were interested in the same thing that I was. I had no idea what I was getting into when I when I decided <laughs> on that as a research methodology. And of course, it you know it subsequently has, has grown arm, arms and legs and become the, the dominant activity of my life. In your artist statement, you talk about light and you've talked about transformation and 
place and landscape in your work. And you, you, you also mentioned a sort of universe of inquiry. So I know you've traveled quite extensively um, for that combination. So which, which parts of this planet have you found what you were looking for when all these uh, things link up in front of you? That's quite a difficult question. I think one of the reasons um, why I uh, travel is because of this thing of seeing things with a degree of innocence. So, you know, if you go to a new place um, that is unfamiliar to you, you see it in a very uh, distinctive light. Um, so getting away from the familiar and into the unfamiliar uh, disarms you. And uh, I think you can kind of see things uh, in a in a, in a new and a fresh way. That's one reason. So I, I've very frequently done artist residencies. That's one of the my chosen methods. When I really feel that I want to make a piece of work, I will uh, apply for or or choose a place to go and um, go, go on an artist residency. That may be a month or it may be three months. And um, that, that gives me a, a, a kind of, uh, total freedom uh, to be able to work and also not be uh, absorbed into the normal day-to-day -day activities that we do. So it's it's been a chosen method of, of, of working, which I found very, very powerful. In terms of the, the actual places, I mean, uh, I had an in incredibly rewarding experience on a, a one-person residency in a forest in Finland. I found that, that hugely rewarding um, in Svalbard in the high Arctic much much more challenging environment and difficult to engage with because it was in so, so many ways so inaccessible and so foreign and also a little bit dangerous uh, in its parts I think perhaps the most rewarding landscape I've ever been in was when I was making a work called Fingal's Cave which was a three screen installation which was first shown at the Foxhall Gallery in, in Poland. And um, that was exploring Fingal's Cave on the uninhabited island of Staffa. So I began by doing day trips out to Staffa and then uh, I kind of got to know the boatman and um, expressed my desire to stay on the island of Staffa and initially said, no, no, I can't possibly let you do that. And in the end, I ended up spending um, some nights on Staffa. And, uh, I remember sleeping on this uninhabited island right on the top of it um, and I'd been working with the camera all day long in this astonishing sea cave uh, and it was just one of the most complete moments of my life I think was just that total utter loneliness looking out to sea all around you and that you're on your own on this island and it was one of the greatest and happiest experience of total isolation I've ever known. Into the moth light. Into the moth light podcast. I think it, it perhaps is a, a, a recurring theme, um, the, the the abandoned landscape. And forgive me if I've got the title of this work incorrect, but one I revisited recently before we sat down today was Only 12 Frames Remain. Is that right? Mm. Uh -huh. mm. Which again, so, uh, you know, the, the idea of a place that had life 
had had no life apart from you there as a filmmaker with your camera and as part of your exploration of that landscape other ideas kind of came to the forefront which you then included and, and built work around as well is that fair to say yeah uh, that, that work was called 12 frames left it was out of the residency i did in the high arctic and um, where we were um uh, sailing around Svalbard in a in a boat and getting limited access to the land but we uh, went into a community called uh, Pyramiden which was an ex-Soviet community it still has statues of Lenin there but it's completely abandoned and um, large large kind of living blocks where everyone lived it was a mining community and all these astonishing murals which were incredibly utopian um, so it had you know family of the week star of the week worker all this kind of like the 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 stuff we associate with with the most idealistic forms of of communist russia and it had a an auditorium in it and a projection room and inside the projection room still there are all these cans of film um and there's films spewing out where people have obviously been there before and i just picked up 12 frames off the floor and took them home with me i still have them on my on my studio wall there's something incredibly kind of melancholic uh, uh about that 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 death of utopianism i think and the uh, darkness at the heart of it um, actually part of the soundtrack is one of the other artists singing a minor song uh, which is uh, a very very dark piece uh, i'm kind of interested in that inner inner darkness i would say one of the other films i revisited that's slightly newer was five angels so a personal take on brexit and alternate possibilities for governance and I think you said at the time that it was quite a blunt tool. And you can see this film online. We'll maybe post some links on our Twitter feed. But as an artist, how important is it for you to vocalise your political views through your work? Uh, generally, um, I, I find the notion of, of, of the political uh, a really interesting one because um, every work is political. Uh, so... By that I mean sometimes they're political by what they leave out and what they don't mention. So you know, if you're an artist um, and you're making very uh, lyrical and poetic work, the fact that you leave all that human stuff out is as political a statement as um, banging nails through people's faces, um, which I kind of do um, in that film. I have to say, you know, sometimes I make films in order to uh, deal with my own emotions. I think, I think most most filmmakers do that, really. And uh, I was so felt so angry at the at the kind of uh, political situation of of Brexit that I had to do something. But I also had a dream in which um, I did dream. I th I think it might have been Theresa May. Um, I dreamt about a politician and. Um, the, the either the feeling or the imagery in the dream I can't remember exactly um, were that nails were coming out of their eyes at me so while the film seems like a kind of brutal thing that I'm doing to the politicians uh, the nails popping out of people's eyes is is actually more that these politicians have nails for eyes um, and they're nailing us that's what they're doing so uh, that's really what that work was about and, and it, it was a personal and quite angry response. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. 
in general, I would say my work is not very political. I think because I'm, I'm just not interested enough in people. Uh, I I get much more from nature and places that are absent of people. That's just how I am. I think. So you you mentioned residencies and in terms of your work and practice that allows you that that space to create, but we all have to pay the bills. So what, what's your approach to, to working and finding time to do that um, over and above the day job of being a creative director for an arts organisation? It's, it's very hard to sustain a practice as an artist filmmaker. And um, this was a question that really preoccupied me for, for uh, two or three years. I, I kind of went round and um, had to ask every artist I met, how on earth do you survive? <laughs> and uh, the answers, interestingly, are that there, there really isn't any, any one way. Everyone finds a way in the end um, to, to keep uh, the wolf from the door and to make work. And that's the challenge. So I think to expect to live from your art is, is a really tough order. It's, you know, if you, if you expect that of yourself, um, then you have to, I think, enter the, enter the world very young and, um, and really work it. And you have to consider other things um, like the collector's market. Um, I do work with artists who do survive only from their artwork and they get substantial level commissions and they, they do live that way but the vast majority have other uh, strings to their bows. So in my case, I've had periods when I've totally dedicated myself to making work. Um, I've been very uncomfortably um, hard up uh, during those periods. Sometimes I had been tempted, you know, I was offered a job at the, at the BBC, which I just really had fought with myself because I so desperately needed some income. Uh, but I just said, I had this moment where I just said, no, I'm not going to do that. So it's it's just a constant challenge. I think it's it has been interesting that uh, Alchemy Film Festival has grown and our funding for that has grown. And now I'm able to be paid for some of the work that I do. Mo well, most of the work that I now do for Alchemy is, is on a paid basis. And that's a real blessing. With that, however, with a growing organization and lots of other staff um, that come in on a freelance basis, it's become an all-consuming occupation. So it's been very, very hard to uh, sustain my normal ways of working. So I used to take maybe three months a year where I would go on residences or I'd just go away somewhere as cheaply as I possibly could and live as cheaply as I could. Once went to Italy for three months um, and lived like a pauper in a really tiny space, but it was a really wonderful creative experience. I can't do that anymore. I can't afford the time uh, to do that. It's not so much about the money anymore now. It's about the it's having the time to make work. And I found myself, like many artists, saying, well, if only I had time, I would make something. If only I had a month. I would, I would make this film that I've been thinking about for the last six months. And uh, I, I've recently had to revise that and try to arrive at a, a new way of making films that actually works with a lifestyle in which I have a lot of other re responsibilities. So the, the blessing of being able to work in the art world, and many people working in academia find the same thing, um, is that you are supported financially, but the, you need to find new ways of working. 
and that means working in a shorter form or sometimes a more spontaneous way. That's what I've been trying to do recently as a creative practitioner is not to make excuses by saying I haven't got enough time. You know, if I've only got an hour, make something in an hour. That's what I try to do. Into the moth light. Into the moth light. A lot of your work is shot in 16mm, and I know that you film in a Bolex. And uh, watching 16mm film, it's a format that just has no indication of becoming obsolete. You can see it projected in festivals across the globe. What is the fascination with that rather than digital, for example? I think 16mm fascinates people for, for a whole range of different reasons, actually. And my reasons might be different, certainly are different from some others. So one aspect of that is its artisanal quality and its kind of rarity or rarification even so when you're working with 16 you're you're working in with quite a, a profound set of limitations um, but you can also work in a very physical way with it so even before you shoot you have to you know, you're manipulating film, you're opening a physical device, you're putting the film in the device, you're making sure it goes in the right way, that the sprocket holes line up, um, that you've got the film the right way around. Um, even that's such a physical process. And then on a typical reel of 16, which is maybe there's 100 foot long, you've got maybe three minutes of shooting time on that. So that's another profound limitation. So you've got all this this uh, this limitation to deal with and I like those aspects of things particularly now I'm trying to work in a more spontaneous and short form way actually to know that I've only got three minutes of film in the camera is really liberating it's it's you you would think that knowing you could shoot for as long as you like would be really liberating it actually is not it's it, it can be can can kind of um, completely paralyze you knowing you've got that much freedom so I really like those those limitations I think for many people the attraction of 16 is that it can be an entirely 16 uh, entirely physical process so you you shoot the film you take the film out you develop it yourself uh, you cut it yourself you then use an optical printer to make a print you know it's it it's it can be entirely physical and that's the artisanal quality of it actually that aspect of it for me is not uh, for me the most interesting is these other limitations the the creative limitations um that i'm i'm really interested in it it's also not as true an image in, in a sense as uh, a digital uh, high quality digital image so i think filmmakers are are attracted to things that actually have um some kind of an artistic uh, quality in the image that things aren't uh, pristine in that way at some point in the future people will look at an HD digital video image and say uh, isn't that cute in it a bit like the, in the way that people look at VHS and now there's a kind of resurgence in VHS filmmaking um, because it's awful you know it looks it looks quite awful it's it's got a look to it it's got a, a whole feeling about it and a whole technology and process associated with it 
So all these things are, are interesting. And of course, there's the other element with 16 millimeter of the home developing the random quality of the uh, chemicals that you may use. Even if you don't home develop, um, you may expose film in different ways uh, to landscape forces. So there's a lot of cutting and scratching on film. There's a lot of leaving uh, burying film uh, or exposing it to urine or shit or whatever, you know, anything you like to try and process and alter the image. So, um, and those again are all quite physical processes. So I think that's where the, the, the kind of real attraction lies. It's also in the image itself, I think, because film has this quality that when you project through it, um, you're really seeing the light come through uh, the film substrate. You know, it's 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 light passing through um, the, the the thing, and it's that's quite different to the d digital. So the blacks are actually black; they're an absence of light. Whereas with digital, you're kind of projecting black <laughs> blackness. There's still a light there. Um, so uh, even in terms of the projection, it's 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 really interesting. Uh, I do, uh, but I'm not. I'm actually quite agnostic about um, formats. Uh, I quite like myself working with 16 millimeter, but I really love um, some of the experiments that are happening in the digital image uh, work of filmmakers like Jacques Bacant, who are actually going back to the formal qualities of uh, digital imagery and looking. Uh, almost at the the mathematics behind it and really messing with things like time as a quantity uh, which you cannot do um, in quite the same way with a with a uh, with a 16 millimeter image so I'm very interested in these formal approaches also to the digital I think um, all of it ultimately is how do you feel when you're looking at the resulting image those that that to me is the test of everything so while these formal processes may be employed um, it has for me to result in something that's meaningful as an image that kind of leads me on to my penultimate question um, so you mentioned Jacques Pocomp who we interviewed for episode six and the second half of the interview was conducted at Fat Lips Castle on the film walk that you'd planned through Alchemy and we had just sat and watched um, Stan Brackage's Text of Light. Jacques talked passionately about what Brackage meant to him and at what point, because you mentioned before that you came to this quite late in life. I know that you've written extensively about Stan Brackage and we could probably talk for many hours about it. At what point did you discover him and uh, allow that influence to, to have an impact on you in terms of the light and how we explore it and capture it? That's maybe an unfair question. That's a great question because it's, um, you know, again, I, I, I came to Stan Brackage um, quite late. Uh, in fact, I had been working as an artist uh, filmmaker for, for some years uh, before I really uh, was exposed to Brackage's work. It was, in fact, I think, possibly the first Alchemy Film Festival um, when I invited uh, a, a wonderful and also quite an influential person on me, Pip Chodorov, uh, to come and present a programme of films. And um, interestingly, yeah, uh, one of the films he showed was a Stan Brackage film uh, and another he showed was one of Jacques Bacon's really earliest works which is uh, I forget what it's called now but it's of a boat rowing down the river 
so actually I encountered Jacques Picant and Stan Brackage pretty much in the in the same program. So yeah, he's he's been hugely influential in so many ways, uh, particularly his writing about vision, I think, um, that kind of innocence of the eye uh, to be able to see things almost as a, or, or to experience a film as a kind of like a child waking up in a, in a world of color. Um, and and it's, it's, it's kind of purely impressionistic. Um, and of course, uh, Stan Brackage's, it was kind of coincidental in a way that my interest in alchemy and Stan Brackage uh, kind of collided um, around uh, the text of light um, because Stan Brackage references all these kind of English light philosophers like Bishop Robert Grossetest um, who and um, Ezra Pound through, pretty much through Ezra Pound but anyway let's not get uh, uh, in, into that kind of kind of discourse here but um, yeah Here's my final question, and I appreciate this as another biggie, so I'll give you a moment to think about it. So from the, the moth light, we could give you the gift of three months' time when you have that to yourself. Is there a big work brewing somewhere that, given three months, you would be able to kind of realise that, that work, and what would it look and feel like? Mm. Yes. Um, the the. There are a, a, a couple of things brewing in the in the back of my mind. Um, one is an incomplete project, actually, which which I I know I have to return to, which is um, actually came out of a residency at Duke University, where I encountered a document called the Notata, um, which was written in the 17th century, and it was full of these cryptograms, uh, which were different evocations of a Catholic prayer, and they were astonishingly beautiful visually um, but I became very interested in the idea of what can be encrypted into an image so um, that's a piece of work that I know I can't shoot that over a weekend that does require a longer gestation period to look at that notion of, of uh, what can be encrypted into an image um, and how uh, so I can't really say what that would look like uh, at all. Uh, a second piece of work, which I'm actually um, beginning right now um, in June, is that uh, I have always wanted, I made a film called Alchemist um, with the performance artists Alastair McLennan and Sandra Johnston. And uh, that was a 30 minute piece, which was initially premiered at Glasgow International um, as a two-screen installation with these enormous mirrors attached to it I really enjoyed making that first work with them and since then we've had numerous conversations about working together again and uh, we actually have a one-week shoot planned to happen at the end of June and um, so we're starting on that project to shoot a new a new work together again because of our working methodology which is which is to work experimentally together they have an established practice as performance artists so i'm not saying you know here's the storyboard um we're really playing around with ideas and working out what we can do together i've no idea exactly how that will will look um i was quite inspired by a, a film by amal kanwa uh, called such a morning which i saw at rotterdam this year stunningly beautiful film uh, 
which has a great deal of uh, stillness in it and um, subtle movements of light. So I'm interested in that. I'm interested also in the idea of the minor gesture. So how a really tiny gesture can contain a great deal of meaning. So that might be just a small movement of a hand or um, a slight shift in position of something that maybe alters the way that the light moves in a room. I would love the opportunity to really delve into that notion of the minor gesture with these these two artists. So we're beginning with a, a one week film shoot and we may that may be it or we may develop this project over the next two years um, given the very busy schedules that all of us had. It's taken us three years to get a week together. Richard, it's been a pleasure to spend some time with you today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Into the Mothlight is a Charles S. Bravo production. You can follow us on Twitter at the Mothlight Pod. Email your questions and comments to mothlightpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at Mothlight Podcast. Like us, rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast isn't sponsored by anyone. Perhaps you can do something about that. Until next time, goodbye.